Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Five guys, they're watching you, but they ought to be listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. I mean, I think there are other good podcasts out there, but I feel this is the only wicked good podcast. I'll tell you what. Let's get Courtney Love and the girls from Hole in here. Courtney, if someone were to suggest to you that there was another wicked good wrestling podcast out there, what would be your reaction? Emotional girl there. Uh, this show is coming out on June 26, 2020. Already the weirdest year I've ever lived through, and we're not even halfway through it. And with that, I want to bring in my guest, good enough to join us today, Mr. Thomas Bain. Thomas, how are you? I'm great, John. 2020 has lasted roughly, I'm not looking at a calendar right now, but I think we're in year 17 of 2020 right now. So uh, it feels like year 27. This is ridiculous. It's, it's, this is coming out June 26th. There's no baseball. At least the NBA and NHL are probably coming back. Although college football now looks less and less promising. So it definitely looks less and less promising every day. I mean, and the worst thing that could possibly happen I think would be a sport starting and then having a breakout and then shutting down again. That would suck for everybody. I think at this point in time, if a sport gets off the ground, it's just going to be next man up at this point in time. There's so much money invested into the protection and safety procedures that are going on. I can't see them going to all that effort and then pulling it back. Maybe it might be a next man up situation. You're right. I mean, I mean, who, if someone had told me on January 1st that a big concern of mine was losing another mask, I'm like, wait a minute, what, did I get in the wrestling business somehow? What's going on here? <laughs> I, I'll tell that you what, you became though. A, uh, became a what? Either that or you became an amateur bank robber. There you go. They're all amateurs. Don't, never mind those guys. But one way to look at it, if you're a teenager, you lost your prom, you lost your graduation, but it's a hell of a good time to go out and buy beer because you're wearing a mask. Well, some of the fake IDs I had in the uh, early 2000s, a mask would have been really beneficial. So <laughs> there is a silver lining to that. I, I had some bad fake IDs back in the day, but this was back when you can have a fake ID without the cops getting involved. But Tom, now one thing I want to bring up really quickly is we had some absolutely great news this week. Jeff Bowdrin, friend of mine. This is my fifth decade of being friends with Jeff Bowdrin. Jeff announced that his diagnosis is that he is now cancer-free. Jeff made me so happy to hear that. Jeff just retired and just moved to North Georgia, like, within the last year. And had this gone the other way, I mean, that would have just been the cruelest joke ever. Uh, Fantastic news to hear that Jeff is uh, on the upswing. Although, I kind of got a spoiler alert about that whenever... Uh, we were talking about college football the other night, and I had the prediction that it would be conference play only. Oh, yeah. I had a little sidebar saying, sorry, Notre Dame. And then Jeff came back and said, you know, who would be, uh, who would be out of their minds to 
turn down that Notre Dame money. So I kind of got a feeling then he was in better spirits, uh, in better health. So I'm glad to have the confirmation of that. All right, definitely. And Jeff, if you're listening, we're looking to, looking forward to having you back on really soon. This comes out June 22nd, 2020. J.J. Dillon on that day turns 78 years old. Jay, I've met, met a lot of guys in the wrestling business, and J.J. was one of the very nicest. I sincerely want to wish him a happy birthday. Even I know he's not listening, but if you're listening to this and you know J.J., please pass it along. Thomas, any thoughts on J.J. Dillon? I think J.J.'s career is very underrated in the fact that if you ask you know, the average fan what you know about him, obviously it's going to be the Horseman and JCP. To me, that's probably the, the, the second best run he had. I think the stuff he did in Florida was much stronger than what he did with Crockett, even with you know, Buddy Landale, Tully, then the Four Horsemen. Because really, when you look at his career in Crockett, it's, what is it, three, three and a half years maybe? Ah, uh, let me think. It was it was about four years, about four about four years. He came in mid eighty four and was out before the end of eighty eight. And that's what I said. Like he just everyone kind of sticks to that because he was with Flair. Obviously, it was probably the most money he made in his career. I would venture to say. But oh, yeah. in terms of you know quality, I think the Florida stuff is better. I actually agree with you. He was a although this is a compliment for Dylan. He was a different kind of manager in Florida than he was in JCP. In Florida, he was kind of a comedy type wearing the cheap prom tux. In JCP, he was, you know, he, he fit in perfectly as the whatever, I don't, they didn't call him a manager. I forget what they called him, but whatever he's, his role was with the horseman, he was really good in that role. I'm trying to think when he said that, was it consultant? Was that what he was called? Ah. Uh, as soon as we finish up, it'll like jump right into my head. But, you know, he was, I mean, whatever it was, he was the leader of the horsemen. And I, I thought he did a really good job there. He had a long wrestling career before that, that la- I want to say went about 15 years. I know he got started in the, in the late sixties. And he has that famous match. And I shouldn't say famous match, but kind of like sticks out like a sore thumb wrestling Tito Santana at MSG when he's well past his prime but it was a favor called in by a favor called in. And then JJ got that MSG appearance right at the very end of his in-ring career in 84. So yeah, I, that, I, you know, off the bucket list. I mean, Hey, good for him. He got to wrestle at Madison square garden. And you know, it, it's not like the match was terrible or anything. Yeah. It's a very passable undercard match. Yeah, exactly. So, and this is the 42nd anniversary of the Yukon lumberjacks winning the WWF tag team titles. In 1978, they weren't horrible in the ring, but the concept was awful. The concept was Lou Albano happened to be in the Canadian Yukon, so right there, and he finds these two guys, and they're so good. They've never wrestled before, but apparently pro wrestling is so easy that these guys can just come right in and win the WWF Tag Team titles. It's more logical than Wild Red Berry finding a guy in Manchuria in the in the jungles and you know christening him Gorilla Monsoon. So <laughs> everything there's always something worse is what I'm going to put it out as. I, I know it, it's wrestling, but even even as a kid, it stood out to me. I had never seen uh, Zaranoff Lebeau before, but I I instantly recognized Scott Irwin, and it's like, hey, you're not a lumberjack, you're Scott Irwin. 
Irwin's quite young whenever he had that UConn lumberjack run, I want to say. Because he, when he passed away, he was still in his 30s, Michael, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you're correct. So, yeah, he had to be, I mean, his wrestling career had just started. He had been a jobber in Florida in like seven, starting in like 77, 78. And I recognize his picture from one of the magazines. He probably got started earlier than that. But anyway, Thomas and I, the premise of this show, we're going to have a conversation where we discuss an episode of WCW Nitro that took place exactly 20 years ago, June 26, 2000. And uh, here's where I was at this point. I want to find out where you were at this point. I had stopped watching WCW in 1998. I would watch Raw, and then I had someone mail me tapes of Nitro. I would get the tapes in every two weeks. And I would dread watching it. It, it. it wasn't even just bad. It was something that put me in a bad mood. I hated it so much. Then these tapes started to pile up, and I said to myself, all right, this weekend, I'm going to tackle this. And then when the time came, I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing it. I contacted the guy I was getting the tapes from and said, you know, stop sending them. I'm not watching them. And I had a weekend to myself instead of having a weekend being miserable. Thomas, where were you as a fan at this point of WCW? You know, as I as I put this on the network uh, this past week, my first thought was, you know how you, you, your mind kind of revises history in your own mind? Yeah. Um, I always thought that I switched back and forth. I favored the WWF, but I, I flip-flopped back and forth until the very end. When I watched this episode, I'm like, what the hell is this? I've never seen any of the, half of these guys in my entire life. When same here. Ray Mysterio become a heel. No, I mean, same here. A, a lot of these guys I had never seen before, and I did not know any of the storylines. I mean, I'd forgotten it. I, I read in the Observer and the Torch, you know, updates for what was going on, but that's not the same thing as watching it. Right, and even if like I'm sure that I wouldn't know, you know, the WWF's you know storylines or or feuds by heart, but I would think if I popped in a Raw from June 26, 2000. I would say, oh, yeah, Edge and Christian, or, oh, yeah, this is a Kurt Angle program, or, you know, some, it would jog my memory. This was just, I got the men in black thing in my eyes and just totally wiped this out of my memory. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, and you know what, in a way, I regret not paying more attention to the Monday Night Wars when they were going on, because it was, it was, you were, you were watching history unfold before you, but then again, that involves at least four hours a week plus the pay-per-view. So that's that's easier said than done for me. And you know what? This show in a vacuum wasn't terrible. It's the fact that if you watch the show before it and the show after it and there's zero continuity, that's what killed WCW. Yeah, I agree. I totally watched this show in a vacuum. And I mean, without giving away my final grade, I didn't hate it. To me, I think there was one complete throwaway segment, or maybe two throwaway segments, but all in all, like the the show, if you use that show as a base, as your foundation, you could do something with WCW. It's the fact that things changed again and again and again and again. And the fact, too, you don't have Hogan on that show, you don't have Flair, you don't have, uh, well, you kind of have Sting, but I mean, you're building on the young people which is your, your flagship show. But then when you get to the pay-per-view, none of these guys are there. 
<laughs> I do know that they were building up a pay-per-view like two weeks later. And you're right. They, it was going to be Jeff Jarrett against Hulk Hogan. And Jarrett was the only guy who was on. There were a couple of Hogan mentions, which we'll get to. So anyway, Thomas, if we are speaking about this show and I zoom past something that you wanted to share an observation on, like, definitely let me know. OK. Sure. sure. All right. So let me see. So like I said, I'm coming into this thing cold. I know nothing about it. They had the introduction and I don't think they did a very good job. They kind of did a wrap up of what was going on. And after watching that, I only understood that Tank Abbott now likes three count, which I thought was very funny. Goldberg does not like Nash for whatever reason. And whatever else they were talking about, I had no idea. Well, it didn't help that what you saw on Nitro and Thunder the previous week Two thirds of it wasn't even mentioned again on Nitro. The this past, you know, this past episode, the Goldberg Nash stuff, yeah, but everything else. Uh, do you know why Tank Abbott likes three count? No. Do you know why this is going on? Do you know why Jeff Jarrett is, is, is cutting promos? Why Goldberg turned heel? No, and no. So again, it's basically like almost like musical booking. Like Russo books this episode, Ed Farr books this episode. Then here's Bischoff. Then here's Terry Taylor. Then Kevin Sullivan. Then back to Russo. That would at least make sense. This is all Russo. It's like it's as if Russo just changes his mind mid-episode and goes, okay, we're going to scratch all that. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I went through – I actually watched this episode twice. Talk about uh, being masochistic. I mean, I watched it in you know bits and pieces throughout the week, and then yesterday I watched the whole thing again just in case I missed anything. And I still don't know why Goldberg was a heel. The story that I had heard was if Russo and Bischoff had stuck around, both of them, was there were going to be two factions. It was going to be the Millionaire's Club with uh, Eric Bischoff, which would be Hogan, Blair, you know, Nash, Sting, Luger, you know, DDP, all the uh, seasoned guys. And there was going to be a program called the New Blood. With, you know, your guys like your Shane Douglases, your Booker T's, your Jeff Jarrett, your Chuck Columbo's, and each of them would have a show. Now, when you think of something, when you think, okay, Millionaire's Club and New Blood, who do you think would be the heels? You'd be the I... rich, nasty millionaires, right? No! <laughs> they made the millionaires the faces! Oh, my God. Now, now I'm starting to feel good about my decision not to tune into this every week back 20 years ago. One thing I will give Russo credit for, I mean, I watched the show twice and I did not hear one Vince Russo mention or alluded to. I didn't hear like the higher in power or whatever the hell they were calling themselves at one point. None of that was mentioned unless I missed it. If you fast forward on the WWE Network about two weeks when Hulk Hogan gets fired in the ring by Vince Russo, that's when that ball starts rolling. Now, keep uh -oh. in mind, we're not even at the worst part yet, and we're still three months removed from David Arquette being the world heavyweight champion, and we haven't even gotten to rock bottom yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, the way they did it, it made sense. I, I remember at least seeing that, but the concept, they're like, oh, no, maybe this could work and we can get some mainstream publicity. No, you're just making yourself look stupid. Right. And I, 
let, let's just get on with the show here because it, it, this is already enough homework watching this thing. But thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, the programmers at Turner decided by mid 2000 to make it from a three hour show back to a two hour show. So I can't yeah. complain too much. Yeah, three hours is too long. I, I still think that about Raw. But anyway, let, let's get rolling on this. Um, so they do the intro, and then we see, you know, they start the show. We have a full house in Des Moines, Iowa, so that's a good thing. I know, I not a totally full house. There were some empty seats, like on the upper, like the upper edges of the far, furthest part away. But it was a hot, enthusiastic crowd, so they did well there. The first thing I noticed, besides the guy in the hard camera wearing the Ricky Williams or giving double middle fingers for the camera, uh, the first thing I noticed was when they did a little um, vignette with. Ernest the Cat Miller, who I guess is the commissioner, uh, the GM, I don't know. It racked my brain for a much longer than it should have been. Was the guy who was his sidekick, was that Ice Train? I'm not sure. I was wondering who that I, person I could, was. Because I could not figure out who it was for the life of me. I still haven't, because I've never seen that guy again. But you know what, before we got to Ernest, I noticed that like we kind of went through the crowd and through the entranceway where the wrestlers come in, and someone has a sign that says, quote, Jeremy K is gay, gay in big block letters. Talk about something you would never see today. And frankly, we shouldn't have seen it in 2000. Someone in production should have gotten that guy off camera. And, you know, for as bad as WWE has you know, been made out to be by us, by you know, historians, etc., that was a hot crowd. Yes. For a summer night in 2000. This wasn't a, a, an arena that was papered. These are people that came there and, and, and paid their money to come see the show. It wasn't, you know, a bunch of guys winning, you know, the 10th caller on a radio show. These are people that wanted to be at Nitro. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, forgive me if I am a bit repetitive when it comes to this, but, like, uh, I'm trying to think of who, like, Alex Rodriguez did not come to Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Michael Jordan was still playing. He did not come to Des Moines, Iowa. But the big stars in WCW did. Kevin Nash did. Goldberg did, etc. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. Like, for some reason, they they really, towards the end, were utilizing, like, Daytona Beach a lot and doing a lot of things, you know, at the Georgia Dome to try to, you know, pop the crowd, get that big-looking house. Where they needed to be were, you know, I don't want to call them tank towns because they're, they're not by any means. But these, you know, middle-sized cities with no sports arena where there's really not a whole lot to do, wrestling is right now coming off of the zine that they had, you know, in 97, 98. But hell, it, it's still, you know, a rabid fan base in early, in early mid-2000. Yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, it was, that was a big plus. The crowd was into it. So let's talk about Ernest Miller's opening talking segment. Either I had never seen him before, or I'd seen him before and I just didn't remember him. He didn't make a uh, impression on me. I thought he was a good and charismatic talker, but the, you see, he didn't do this right, in my opinion. You're supposed to go out there and let them, okay, you're going to see this, pause. You're going to see this, pause. You're going to tell us why we're seeing it. This guy just went 100 miles an hour through the whole thing. Ernest Miller came into WCW, I want to say sometime in 1997. And he came in as Glacier's martial arts friend in the feud between Mortis and Wrath. 
So I don't know how you become someone's martial arts sidekick and then become the commissioner of WCW in the span of 18 months. I've blacked that out of my memory, but, but more power to the, to them for doing that. Obviously Russo or someone else or Bischoff or somebody was a big fan of Miller. Miller can cut a good promo. He came to the WWF about a year or so after the, the sale and kind of had the same gimmick. He was really a one-trick pony in the ring. wasn't much of a wrestler, but was more of a kind of authority figure sort of thing. And you know, but that's really his niche. And I think maybe they should have worked with him a little bit more, you know, instead of just kind of letting him go and just pulling the string on, let him go 100 miles an hour, as you said. But what's the alternative? Having Kevin Nash come out and cut his "I'm cooler than you" promo, part 955. <laughs> yeah, Goldberg, you can't cut a promo. No, and like I said, I mean, we'll get to Goldberg later, but he announces that Goldberg is going to be a fighting. Well, first, what happens is in the middle of his speech, we hear patriotic music, and then we see a 46-year-old, not in very good shape. He's fat. Let's just say it. He's fat. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He comes out wearing the Fritz von Erich Memorial jumpsuit with long sleeves and everything in the middle of the summer in Iowa where it's friggin' hot. I actually thought he was wearing coveralls. I didn't think he was wearing a jumpsuit. I don't know. He <laughs> looked like he was dressed to wash windows, actually, in a high-rise. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he was dressed like. That's what Fritz looked like. The Duggan thing, and we'll get to it later on, but I thought... Again, in a vacuum, I didn't have a big problem because, you know, what, cause like, you know, I knowing now what I didn't know then, you know, having the benefit of hindsight, if they were going to make Doug a full-time performer at this point in time, or, you know, have him in the upper mid card or whatever, yeah, I'd have a big problem with it, but this is kind of a nostalgia thing. And it was done to give heat to Goldberg because Goldberg had apparently just turned heel and they were worried about, you know, having that 50-50 split. Yeah. Now, granted, Jim Duggan isn't the right person to give heat to, but, you know, Duggan had just come off that cancer treatment or, and it was, was given a clean bill of health. So, yeah, it was, probably, it was probably the right thing to do to give Goldberg a I mean, not to get ahead of myself, but, like, they had a feature on Duggan beating cancer earlier in the show or later in the show. They didn't mention this specifically, but my understanding is that they took out a tumor out of Duggan that was the size of a football. And I'm like, okay, there's nothing you can take out of me that is the size of a football. It's like, like that's bad. Yeah, it was one of those things where, um, luckily for him, because obviously when there's a tumor that big, it's usually a grim prognosis, but apparently it wasn't as serious as we were, they were originally led to believe, and you know, Duggan turned out to be fine, thankfully. And that's the kind of thing where you, obviously there was no internal, you know, damage done with, with the cancer. Obviously he wouldn't be able to wrestle again after that, but I, 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 I don't want to spoil anything as we go on down the line, but let's just say it was, it was a good, good start out to the program. In my opinion, no, in, in my opinion as well. Now here's where I get confused. Duggan gets into an argument with Ernest Miller and Miller, who I think was supposed to be a good guy, or at least I did 10 seconds before this, books Duggan against Goldberg and you know wow I mean is this guy a bit is Miller a babyface or a heel I don't get it I think he's a heel because and and again this is me just using connect the dots logic that probably changed 15 minutes into the show 
but I believe Scott Steiner was a face. I believe Kevin Nash was a face, and Jared and Goldberg were the heels in that in, in the in the four corners thing. That that sounds that, what I gathered from it. Yeah, that sounds right to me. So anyway, Vampiro does an interview. I didn't even understand who he was challenging. I made notes on here that there is a promo with a gothic Jeff Hardy, and it, it does absolutely nothing for the show. Vampiro to me, and maybe this because I was kind of, you know, away from it, you know, full time at that point in time. But Vampiro was just changed the channel for me. And had I not been, you know, forced to watch this thing in its entirety, Vampira would have been turning it on to Raw in June of 2000. You see, I I know Vampiro has kind of a bad rap. I kind of liked him. I kind of got into his charisma, at least on this night. Uh, It did nothing for me. I mean, the same with um, his protagonist, Dale Torborg, who... Depending upon what person is, you know, in the room with him, we either call him Dale or the Demon. Yeah, yeah. I later learned that he was challenging Dale Torborg, but at first viewing, I, you know, I knew he was challenging someone. I had no idea who he was after. And again, this was something that really—it's one of those things where when you look at this show from start to finish, you know. Assuming that you still have Hogan, you have Nash, you have guys that really can't do a lot in the ring, like Tank Abbott and Goldberg getting prominent spots. You had a lot of in-ring ability here. And we'll get into that, I mean, obviously, as, we, as it goes on and on and on here. But WCW's you know, lack of talent wasn't the reason why they shut down. No. No, it, it never is. It, it's always about the way you promote and market your overall product. We're going to go ahead and go to the first match now, which would have been, I believe, was the Nitro debut of Mark Jindrak and Sean O'Hare versus a faction that I never knew existed, consisting of Conan, the Disco Inferno, Juventud Guerrera, and Rey Mysterio Jr. And boy, did Rey Mysterio get on the gas or what, John? Oh, yes. And I had no idea that this was Jindrak and O'Hare's first match. But yeah, Rey Mysterio was having that Michelin Man look. He, he really did. And I don't know if that was to get him heat. Because the thing about it, too, is they're obviously a heel faction of some sort. But Juventud, Guerrero, and Conan get really big pops. But they, they kind of stifle it by making Disco a goof or whatever. And no one knew them but the make of Jindrak and O'Hare. And... You kind of wonder, when you get through this show and you see the talent that they had, that they weren't quite there yet. If WCW had gotten an actual buyer and gotten on TV and given, you know, two or three more years, what could they have done? Because right now, if you look at, you know, the WWF at this time, you're about two years away from losing Foley, from losing Austin, and losing The Rock. If they have somebody, you know, behind them, what could WCW have done with guys like Jindrak, O'Hare, Rey Mysterio, and, and, and on down the line, Bill Goldberg, things like that? The talent they had, there, there was a world of potential in WCW. I agree with you, and, and that's a really good point that the WWF was going to lose Austin Rock and Foley very quickly. I have maintained throughout that when WCW finally had the plug pulled on it, it was still salvageable. It, you could fix it. It could be done. It wasn't going to be easy, 
but it was salvageable. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, what's his name? Jamie Kellner, I think his name was, canceled Nitro and Thunder, and that was the end of WCW. Well, that's the thing. Uh, Eric Bischoff supposedly had enough investors lined up to buy WCW for around $50 million. But once Jamie Kellner canceled Nitro off of TNT, it just became a bunch of bloated contracts. Yeah. And what are you going to do? You're going to keep paying these guys and then and maybe run house shows? Vince bought it for, what, $3 million? I think it was $4 million. And at the time, that was, that was considered pennies. And right. And really, all he bought it for was the intellectual property and the footage rights. All the contracts are still paid by Time Warner. That's why guys like, you know, Hall, Nash, Hogan, Flair, they didn't come until later, which is why the invasion angle stuck. Because the only people that came in were guys like Booker T, Diamond Dallas Page, or guys who weren't making that much money, and they were taking 50% buyouts in order to come to the WWF. They did that on purpose, because why would you pay Bill Goldberg $3 million a year, or Ric Flair $2.5 million a year, or Sting, you know, a million three quarters a year? Bring in the guys who are making, you know, $100,000 and maybe sprinkle in your, a few stars like DDP and Booker T and who are willing to take that pay cut and then kind of figure it out from there. So really, I don't believe for a minute that WCW was ever going to be, you know, brand B while the WWF became brand A. I think they bought it just to squash it. I, I agree. And when you look back, the WWF worked really hard trying to get that brand reestablished and to give them their own television show. And there was something in their contract with UPN that said that, you know, this has to be WWF wrestling. You can't rebrand it as something else. And the McMahons tried really hard to get a show for WCW on national cable, and they just couldn't do it. Well, like they tried to. The original plan was supposedly going to be. In March of 01, when the WWF bought WCW, the plan was going to be sometime in the summer, fall, whatever, that Monday Night Raw would become Monday Nitro and SmackDown would say SmackDown, the WWF you know, show. Like TV caught wind of this and said, hell no, we're not becoming Monday Nitro. We bought Raw. We're going to get Monday Night Raw. And that, that's sort of what killed it right there. I mean, my understanding was that Spike TV had an objection to it, but contractually, the WWF could do it. But at the end of the day, and I, I totally understand this, Vince McMahon kind of said, you know, this is a gamble that we don't need to take rebranding our flagship show, Monday Night Raw, into something else. How many syndicated shows do they have that time? Or maybe like yeah, they had what, Jacked, they had Sunday Night Heat. They had, I don't know if they had Shotgun anymore. I think Shotgun was done by then. But they had, I believe, Metal. They couldn't have condensed a couple of those shows and given WCW something along the lines of maybe a Friday night show or a Sunday evening show. They didn't have to bastardize Raw and SmackDown in order to you know, have WCW as a viable thing. You could have made it that the, sec the clear number two brand and given them their own show. Because frankly, still, Again, all you have are young guys right now in WCW. I think, how long was it? Maybe six weeks before The Rock was WCW world champion? Um, let me see. Uh, now I'm going back. Uh, I'm, not, I'm honestly not sure. I don't know. 
because once and then granted then you have ECW and everything else but that's that's another topic for another day but it was one of those things where the invasion could have worked if they prolonged it they ran everything out the entire invasion from nuts to bolts was over and done in five months yeah and and how do you successfully tell that story of two brands fighting Vince McMahon forget about the fact that McMahon's now control all three brands and had to get their necks into it. But how do you tell that story with all of that? And then you debut Ric Flair the next night the, the invasion angle ends. <laughs> I mean, I, I do remember that summer 2001, which uh, Dave Meltzer has called the summer of stupidity where, I mean, they literally one night in summer of 2001 on raw, they did about six months to a year's, worth of angles on one episode of Raw. Paul Heyman, when the ECW faction turned and became a brand in this invasion or whatever you want to call it, the crowd was 50% pumped and 50% jaws on the floor. So what do they do the following week? Paul Heyman hands the reins to Stephanie McMahon and Paul Heyman goes back to the broadcast booth to JR. And I don't think I've ever groaned louder in my life when Stephanie walked out, and I think she had like an ECW cap, and she was going to be the leader of ECW. I mean, that was 19 years ago, and nothing personal against Stephanie, but I've been tired of her for 19 years. Couldn't they find a hat so Linda McMahon could have had the AWA? (laughs) made it the whole way around. (laughs) <laughs> there, there you go. I think they they already own the AWA. So yeah, that would have been great. So back to this match. I didn't know it was Ginger and O'Hare's first match. They were really huge guys, and they were great athletes. I thought it was a good match. It told a good big team versus a little team story. Even though I think uh, uh, Hoovy Guerrero and Rey Mysterio are so friggin' small. I mean, in general, and you put them in against these huge guys. I think it was their first match on Nitro, I want to say. Okay. Because I know Jendrak had wrestled on WCW Saturday night, and his gimmick was a basketball player. He would come out in a basketball jersey and, and dribbling a ball and spinning it on his finger. That was his gimmick on Saturday night. So, Jimmy Hart doesn't always hit home runs either. But, um, <laughs> You look at them, and and you can tell they're kind of like deer learning how to run. Mysterio and Hoovy are going 1,000 miles an hour like they always do, and they kind of had to slow down for Jindrak and O'Hare to hit their mark. Not a big deal. I mean, those two guys can have a a three-star opener in their sleep. Yeah. But they allowed Jindrak and O'Hare to kind of show off their size, do a couple strength spots, things like that. So. Again, I thought it was a good match, and it gave them the rub, because I was surprised, actually, that they put them over so quickly on Mysterio having that first match. But as, as we came to the final, they had plans for them as well. Well, I'll say this. I, I thought it was a good match. We are literally exactly 20 minutes in. I mean, I checked, and it said 20 dot dot zero zero. And right now, I'm saying, hey, this isn't bad. It was a good match. And then after the match, we had a, uh, a beatdown by the heels. To make sure you know that Raven Stewart is a heel now. They <laughs> did the four-on-two attack. And the Alberta Hulk Hogan 
Lance Storm comes to the ring and clears out all four guys. And uh, one thing I missed, too, is the Filthy Animals. Like, they had a really cool ring entrance. I wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, Lance Storm hits the ring, goes after the Filthy Animals, all four of them. And they do the thing where, Lance Storm, he doesn't even work here. And when you watch Lance Storm in this match and, and his ability, you can almost kind of see the wheels turning that with Bischoff and Russo is, we got our Chris Benoit now. We got Benoit back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have really. Our ring general. You know, as far as like, you know, the whole, I mean, everything, I mean, the first time they did the They Don't Even Work Here was 12 years prior to this when Paulie Dangerously, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose attacked Jim Cornette. And I thought it was really cool. And then about a year and a half later in Memphis, they did the fake shoot with the snowman and Jerry Lawler. By this point, the whole fake shoot thing, he's not even supposed to be here, was so hackneyed and beaten up. And, of course, Russo was obsessed with it. And, and I mean, WCW did this a lot, first of all. Too much. This isn't a, a really a Russo, this isn't a Russo thing. But at some point in time, you got to fire Doug Dellinger. If he doesn't work here, how the hell is he getting in the ring? <laughs> he's been there for 11 years now, and he can't keep people out of the ring. Even though, what's his name, Mark Madden is like, ah, oh, yeah, we got to get better security. Like, he was, even he was kind of, couldn't help but groan at it. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, okay, this is a wrestler. He's not a fan that's giving, you know, crescent kicks to, to Conan right now. We all kind of get it. He works here. It's also kind of an invasion angle where it's a one-man ECW army. And if it was a one-man army, I think they'd probably pick Rhino. They wouldn't pick Lance Storm. So <laughs> let's, 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 let's all pull the wool over everyone's eyes, you know, so quickly. So anyway, next we go to the backstage segment where Ernest Miller, who apparently is the commissioner, is meeting with the animals and they're all yelling at each other. And they're like, go get Sergeant Carter. And I I have no idea what's going on here. I I knew that. The only reason I knew that was it's a Gomer Pyle reference, actually. Was it Conan called him that or Ernest Miller called him that? But Lance Miller has that buzz cut. And if yep. you remember, Gomer Pyle has the drill sergeant, the same haircut as uh, Lance Storm, which ironically enough, I believe his name in the show was Vince Carter. But I haven't watched Gomer Pyle in probably 25 years, so don't, don't uh, quote me on that. <laughs> okay, it's been even longer for me. All right, so I, I get it. You know what? Like, I'm not going to get it. I'm coming in completely cold on this. If I were to watch a random episode of the Sopranos or Breaking Bad, whatever, like I'm not going to get everything if, if I hadn't seen it before. And I just randomly pick an episode right in the middle. So uh, maybe I'm being too hard on him. I don't know. I, I really hate the campy backstage segments anyway, that are supposedly, you know, quote unquote live, but it makes no sense. Why would there be all four guys talking to them, looking at the camera? They're complaining about a guy coming into the stands and attacking them. Shouldn't they be asking the police? <laughs> uh, I don't know. But yeah, I, I thought that segment was sloppy. We're, we're starting to go downhill here from that 20-minute mark, if we notice. Now we have a segment where Hacksaw Jim Duggan's wife is on camera begging him not to fight Goldberg. And first of all, I'm not saying anything bad about Duggan's wife. That is his real-life wife. But, I mean, that hair was out of style by, like, 1987. Doug and I'll kick this coverage with her. I, I'll say that much, but um, 
it was one of those programs where you already knew it was going to happen. Duggan's yeah. not going to beat Bill Goldberg, especially after Goldberg turned heel. Duggan's not going to be in the four corners match for the world heavyweight championship at the end of the show. So this was <sighs> unnecessary to say the least. Oh uh, yeah. And you know, it was a bad segment. They're like, she's saying to him, what about sweet Rebecca at home? Like guys, better writing than that. And since that first 20 minutes that I thoroughly enjoyed, we have had a rough next 120 seconds. It, it's not getting any better right now, hopefully. And, and believe since for the last 12 years, actually, when Jim Duggan's been on a program, the trajectory goes downhill. Yeah. <laughs> Duggan had been bad for a while. He'd been bad since he tore his hamstring in 87. But I, I liked him a lot before that. But anyway, then we have Big Vito a character that I can't imagine who came up with that. He's wearing a fashionable county jail t-shirt and a lot of stiff and dangerous spots from this guy. Yeah, they, they go ahead and show some of the stuff that he has done uh, in order to win the hardcore title. And he issues an open challenge. And apparently, and I, and I heard this on, and maybe I heard this incorrectly. But they said the hardcore title wasn't on the line because the match started in the ring. Something like that. They came up with something crazy. Like three guys came out and attacked him one by one. He took out the first two. And I think they were called the Young Dragons, like Young Y-U-N-J. And the third guy like managed to kick Big Vito's ass. One of which, one of the Japanese wrestlers actually was Jamie Noble in a mask, but that's neither here nor there, but. Because <laughs> you just can't find another Japanese wrestler, right? We had Kaz Hayashi, and I, I don't know who the other guy was, the taller of the three. I don't know if he... They said his name was Wang, Yang, rather, but I don't know if that was the Jimmy Wang Yang from later on, because he seemed a lot bigger than Jimmy Wang Yang, but I could be wrong. I, I think that was him, but I'm not sure. And actually, once that guy, the third guy, started fighting Big Vito, it was a pretty... It wasn't a great classic match, but it was, it was, it was cool. It was a bunch of cool spots. It was, it was a spot fest is all it was. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what it does, though, because it gets nobody over. The champion loses, gets pinned, and the person that beat him, the, the faces, it took three of them. Yep. So who gets over in that? Well, Thomas, it's almost like I understand that concept and you understand that concept, but the people running WCW don't understand that concept. It's just content at this point. They, they're Already, I'm like, oh, my God, they're throwing so much at us. And that's the thing that Vince Russo is most known for. Basically, you know, trying to put as many car crashes on the screen in, in two hours that he possibly could. Because he underestimated the audience. He thought the audience didn't care about titles. They didn't care about feuds. They didn't care about anything else. They just cared about what happened next. And that's the part that killed WCW in the long run. I agree with you. I, I agree. I mean, you know. I mean, not that. I, I, first of all, I'm not one of these people who has a an unreasonable, uh, crazy reaction to Vince Russo. Okay, I mean, he's a guy who, you know, he was doing well with WWF, and then he comes to WCW, and they tell him, and for, for whatever reason, he didn't have a contract in the WWF, right? And they lure him in, and they say, "Look, you know, we're not gonna." stop you from doing whatever you want to do do whatever you want to do and i'm like if, if there's no way and there's no way 
if they had approached me with that, I would have believed it for a second. You mean I get to do whatever I want on TNT? Of course not. The best thing about Vince Russo was everyone in the company had something to do. One of the worst things about Vince Russo was everybody in the company (laughs) had something to do, which meant that everyone got TV time all 70 guys on the main roster. There was plenty more actually, but 70 guys who were healthy all got something, whether it was on nitro or thunder. And at yep. that point in time, you're just, you're just shooting a machine gun at the wall, hoping something actually you hit something. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I was in an email group with some really smart people around this time, 99, 2000. And I'm not even joking when, you know, I would say the majority of the people were either like, and I'm, I'm serious when I say this, they were saying, oh, wow, WCW just won the war or is about to win the war, or they just got a, a major piece in place to, so that they can win the war. The, the thing about Vince Russo was why he was so successful in the WWF. He would put out 50 ideas, and Vince McMahon would cross off 45 of them. Yep. And the five that he had, some worked, some didn't, but some really worked. In WCW, he'd throw 50 ideas at the wall and come hell or high water, you're going to see all 50 in some fashion. Yep. And the problem with having all those ideas are you throw all these ideas out, but you have no plan for next week. You have <laughs> no plan for next month. You know, about a month ago, we had John Muse on. John Muse was going to be one of the bookers for Eric Bischoff had Bischoff bought the company and John would talk about how he would write the end of the story first and then build towards it. It's like Russo, there was no end of the story. There was no plan. There was nothing. Well, yeah, that, and that's probably the way you should do it because if you write the ending and somewhere down the line, you get stuck, it's a lot easier to scrap it than writing it as you go along and then you get stuck but now you have TV to write for that episode and you've already done two months of a, of a program. Yeah. I mean, and I am not always right. Everyone who listens to this show knows I am not always right. But one thing I was right about Vince Russo would appear on Dave Meltzer's old Iata show and he put himself over, man. He tricked a lot of people and he came on right after he jumped to WCW and he would talk about how Vince McMahon kept getting in the way of his ideas and if, if you thought you were going to see some stuff from wwf wait until you see his work now that vince mcmahon is out of his way and as soon as i heard that i was like i mean absolute red alert like this might not work vince mcmahon by all accounts is a egomaniac yes so when russo goes to wcw and says i'm the one responsible for the attitude era there would be no Stone Cold Steve Austin. There would be no Rock. There would be no Degeneration X, if not for me. I did it. I'm going to do it times two in WCW. If there was a shred of truth to that, Vince McMahon would have had his, his people on television and the magazines on the internet vehemently denying it. But he knew that if Russo had enough rope, he would hang himself. Yep. So he just kind of sat back and let him go, okay, Vince, yep, you, you, did, you did it all. Go do it again. Well, what I was saying at the time, too, was that, you know, okay, Russo's gone and he had a lot of good ideas and and people, he had a lot of good ideas once they were filtered by Vince McMahon. 
even if it wasn't your personal taste, it was a very successful era. But what I was saying at the time was, hey, you know, Russo's gone, but he left his playbook behind. I mean, he has shown you how to do it, so you'll live without him. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's not as if he was orchestrating, you know, really creative, year-long storylines, you know, akin to things that have happened, you know, with, you know, I can't even think of a year-long storyline now in the WWF. I guess the Shawn Michaels Triple H stuff after that was was a very long storyline, but that's really it. Yeah. I mean, at, at that point in time, I think you know you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You have the you have the audience accustomed to a certain you know type of programming. To do a complete 180 would just kind of turn fans off. They were afraid, and really, you kind of see it. The the zenith you could say of the Monday Night Wars was Mick Foley winning the world title. And then it was a very slow, gradual fall until then, until you got to, and then you had the sale of WCW. And then people who watched Nitro just either, they walked away from the. And the worst thing that happened was summertime, you lose a lot of viewership. Just, you know, for everything going on, you know, vacations, you know, life, et cetera. To have the throes of the invasion angle done in the summertime was a really, really stupid move. No, I agree with you, actually. I mean, the whole thing was stupid. It was ridiculous. Uh, I don't know what to say. I actually enjoyed Raw until right after WrestleMania 17. It was like the, the Raw after that was terrible, and the one after that was even worse. And I was just like, you know, what the hell is going on here? And I, I think they just fell off a cliff right after that. I, I would probably go a few months earlier. Once McMahon said he was going to destroy his own company by bringing in the NWO. <laughs> that, that's kind of where I'm like, oh, okay, this is done. I'm going to inject poison into my own company. I remember that. That was so bad. Uh, anyway, uh, next we have a weird angle with Terry Funk and a wrestler that I am not familiar with. And when Terry basically cheap shots the wrestler, as part of his training. I thought it was an interesting segment. I thought it was a good segment. I, I think that was Johnny the Bull, Stamboli. I could be wrong on that. But it almost kind of seemed like they were trying to do the Terry Funk, Tommy Dreamer, protege, mentor angle. Yeah. Perhaps. And I never heard about it again, so I'm sure Vince Russo threw that piece of paper in the wastebasket a week later. <laughs> we never heard of it again. Uh, then, you know what? This is. You're right. This is why... I came away not hating this because I watched it in a vacuum. If you watch the next week after that, it would be like watching Vince Russo when he ran WCW. If you watch Monday Nitro, it was like 52 pilot episodes of a wrestling program. <laughs> it didn't matter if you watched last week. It doesn't matter if you're going to watch next week. You're getting something entirely new and different this week. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, all right. So next we have Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo. They take over the production control room. Any thoughts on this, on this Thomas? Uh, the segment, it, it's just the, the comedy stuff. Because Stasiak had just been fired probably about a year before by the WWF for uh, apparently... Stasiak was a, is a, is a parent is a goof in real life. He was a paranoid individual. And what he would do was when he would leave the locker room, 
he would turn on a tape recorder to see if anybody was talking about him. Yes. And some of the boys saw that he was recording things. He was low man on the totem pole to begin with. It's a no brainer. He's fired. WCW brings him in, gives him a good push. They give him and Chuck Palumbo, who really, it, it's hard to say that he got screwed in the WWF because he had that program with Billy Gunn where they play, are they gay? Are they not gay? Yeah. I don't know if Palumbo was going to have a big program aside from that or not, but I, when you look at him and you see he had in-ring ability, there's an argument to be made they dropped the ball with him, but I don't know if he would have gotten bigger than he was with that program with Billy Gunn. I don't know. I mean, he looked like he had some potential, but I, I don't know. But I, I will say this about Sean Stasiak. I mean, when they fired him, they saved his life because, I mean, if you're tape recording stuff in the locker room, you're not far away from them finding you duct taped like a mummy on the side of the road, especially in wrestling. Well, it, it was kind of interesting, though, because of all the guys they didn't bring back after the uh, invasion angle started, they brought back Stasiak. Yeah. He was there for about a year or so after that. So it wasn't like he was, you know, persona non grata. No, I, I mean, I guess, you know, it is a couple of years later and he, I don't know, forgive and forget, whatever. Shane Douglas, who has been announced as part of this four-way dance thing that they're doing, or they have four matches leading up to a four-way match, tries to leave the arena and Ernest Miller stops him. Uh, or who stopped him? Uh, I don't know. Ernest Miller makes these matches because his goal is he wants to stack the deck so it's all the people that are his heels. So it's it's Jarrett, it's Goldberg. You don't want Scott Steiner in there, so you want Shane Douglas in there. So why would the heel commissioner tell his heel lackey, for lack of a better word, yeah, okay, take the night off. We'll have two faces, you know, Buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner wrestle each other. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of things didn't make sense. So now we see the filthy animals trying to find whoever they're trying to find. Any thoughts on that before? I, I, just, I just went a little bit crazy after this, but go ahead. Thomas, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, this is the part where we were led to believe that Lance Storm was not only Hulk Hogan, but he was Michael Myers as well, catching all these people as they're vulnerable walking down a dark hallway. Yeah, it, it, the whole thing was getting sillier and sillier, and this is when I write, we're 28 minutes in, and I cannot keep up. There is nothing wrong with a fast-paced wrestling show. I know this is not WWF All-Star Wrestling from 1978, but this is insane. This is hyperspeed. We are going a million miles an hour here. You wonder if someone would have put a harness on Vince Russo if he would still have storylines left over from 2000 WCW in 2020, because he probably ran through 15 years of programs in about nine months in WCW. I mean, you you would know better than I did because I tuned out, but the pace of this show is incredible. It is, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't expect it to be, you know, seventies wrestling, but it's, I mean, they're doing way too much in my opinion. And compared to Raw at this time, after every segment or, you know, every other segment, they would always go back to the cam with, you know, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler to kind of describe, okay, this is what happened, you know, before the break. This is what's coming up next. This is what's going on. Did we get a camera shot of Tony and the crew after the opening intro? 
I don't think so. That right there buys you 90 seconds. Okay, this is what you missed. If you went up to use the bathroom or get a drink of water, you may as well just turn the channel because you missed a quarter of the show practically. (laughs) Yeah, it was, like I said, I I thought it was, you know, one of my all-time favorite episodes of wrestling I talked about maybe four or five weeks ago was the one where Brian Pillman returned to Raw and attacked Austin when it looked like the show was over. I couldn't believe how much went on in that show. I came away at the time saying, oh my God, that was nuts. It was good, but they got a lot in. I think in 28 minutes, he's already done more than they did on that show. If you went to work the next day and someone said, hey, I miss Nitro. I don't know why they asked. I don't know why they did. I'm probably insane. Lamenting <laughs> me, miss Nitro. But I miss Nitro. What did I miss? You wouldn't even know where to begin. I know. <laughs> That's the thing. It, uh, it was just, you know, it, it, like I said, way too fast paced. So now we do an angle where Shane Douglas pretends he sprains his ankle and Ernest the Cat Miller falls for it. He agrees to put Buff Bagwell in the match against Scott Steiner. And as soon as Miller walks in, we see Shane laughing on camera slamming his ankle against the table as he laughs. So what did you think of that? I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Like I said, it's a match to get into a four corners match for the world title. So Mm -hmm. even if you're not a heel, you're still going to be fighting for the world title. You've made Bill Goldberg the monster in this thing, but I guess now it's Godzilla and Mothra and, and Papa Pump is Mothra because Oh my God, I got to fight Scott Steiner. Come on. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, you're right. I mean, the heel double crosses the heel in order to get out of a potential situation that could land him the world's heavyweight championship. It makes no sense. And somehow in Shane Douglas's infinite wisdom, he had to bribe a guy several hundred dollars to say, Hey Shane, just fake an injury. Like, he couldn't figure that himself. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, it's like going by so fast and like not writing things down because they're not major enough. We go to the match. Three Count is in the ring doing their thing. They were like doing a boy band gimmick. And Tank Abbott shows up. Now, for those unaware, Tank Abbott was a legit UFC badass. Um, and he is now with WCW. Uh, he likes Three Count. He digs the music. He kicks Stasiak and Palumbo out of the control center of the production thing like 10 minutes after they get there. Supposedly, Tank Abbott is the reason that Vince Russo got fired. Um, Have you heard about this, John? Because supposedly they were going to have the title held up for a battle royal. And they were trying to figure out who would, you know, who would be the world champion. And Vince Russo is adamant that it's got to be Tank Abbott. No one will see it coming. And then finally someone said, all right, you mean we're done here, Vince. So that's the story that I heard. I don't remember hearing that story, but it sounds good. And that, you know, that's another weakness of Vince Russo's booking that he doesn't want logical booking. He wants booking that no one would see coming. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. If you can't, and I, and I kind of understand, you know, booking, you know, kind of on the fly a little bit and going off center. But if you don't know what's going to happen every single time, 
that means that basically every match, the coin flip, which means you can't get behind anybody. You can't root for anybody. There's no continuity. If, oh, okay, so Tank Abbott wins the world title tonight. Oh, I guess we'll give it to David Flair next week, and we'll give it to Juventud Guerrero, and we'll give it to Van Hammer, because no one sees it coming. Right. People just stop watching. I, I agree with you. I mean, one thing I figured out that Stephanie McMahon was going to turn on Vince McMahon and turn towards Triple H after he tricked her into marrying him because I was like, well, you know, this is what's going to happen because it's the most Russo thing ever. And it's one of those things, too, where when you see it coming a mile away, there's a lot to be said for when it happens saying, aha, I knew it. Yeah. When they kind of insult your intelligence and you see it coming a mile away and you see it coming and everything leads to it coming and they just swerve you for the sake of swerving you, that's, to me, insulting your intelligence. Exactly. It's swerving for the sake of swerving, which is okay to do sometimes to just keep people on their toes, but when you do it every time, it loses its effectiveness. Absolutely. All right. So we have now Tank Abbott, Drag, Stasiak, and Palumbo, who are the tag team champions, to the ring to defend against three count, the boy band guys. I'm not even sure who's supposed to be the babyface or the heel here. It's certainly not Stasiak and Palumbo, but, I mean, the fans are loud chanting three count sucks. I think they were trying to slowly turn them face by just having Tank being a big goofball and liking him, which really destroys Tank's credibility, of course. Yes. And it destroys the credibility of three count because now not only is there three of them, against two and, you know, three on two in these matches with Plumbo and Stasiak. But now they need a fourth guy who fights in the UFC to kind of bail their asses out. Yeah. So now they're, they're deemed worthless. I don't think this was a very good match. I thought it was okay at best. It's one of those things where, unlike where Jindrak and O'Hare, Pat Hoovy and Ray kind of lead them through the match, you had four green guys just going out there. And, and I'm not saying that because, you know, obviously Helms and Shannon Moore are talented in the ring as well. And they, they showed that later on in their careers. But you have four guys going out there, probably not given much of a, uh, a rundown of what to do. It's like, hey, get your spots in four minutes. Yep. So anyway, eventually Tank Abbott comes to the rescue. And we're 40 minutes into the show. And my note, I'm not sure really what to think, but I don't hate it so far. Again, yeah, it's not a bad show. I mean, you're, you're getting good in-ring work. You, you, you're getting at least some stories. But again, it's in a vacuum. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I mean, but like I said, so far, we're about a little bit short of the midpoint. And, you know, I'm not crazy about it, but I don't hate it. And it gets better. They do a nice feature of Jim Duggan coming back, beating cancer, which is legit. And then they turn around and they give him the worst ring intro ever. I didn't even, I didn't pay attention to the intro. I was really just waiting for Goldberg. And the thing that surprised me when they went to Goldberg was how quickly the crowd kind of turned on him. It wasn't for Duggan, obviously, because people didn't really care about Duggan. I mean, uh, granted, the, the cancer thing is, is heartwarming and everything else, but no one cared about Jim Duggan in 2000. No one thought he was credible to Bill Goldberg. It gets to this thing, though, because people have said, you know, what are some of the reasons WCW died? And one of them was they killed the Golden Goose. They turned Bill Goldberg heel. I vehemently disagree with that. Because by, you know, 2000, we're now in year three of Bill Goldberg's, you know, monster face run. 
just destroying everyone. For the last 15 years in the WWF, people have been begging for the Superman babyface to turn heel, whether it's John Cena, whether it's Roman Reigns, whether it's whoever. They did it in WCW, and now they're complaining they did it. I think him turning heel was good because a babyface like that that can't cut a promo has a very short shelf life. Yes. And turning him heel, giving him, you know, having him with, you know, Jeff Jarrett or whoever it is, you know, being Jeff Jarrett's henchman. And I think that's what they said. He was only in it for the money. He didn't care about the world title. He was a mercenary, basically. So they explained that away. Why isn't Goldberg going to go after Jarrett for the title? He, all he cares, he's getting paid to not do it. So, you know, pay me, you know, whatever. So they, they actually explained it a little bit. And I, you know, to me, I was satisfied with that being the reason why he turned heel. Yeah. Again, people keep saying, why don't you turn Cena? Why don't you turn, you know, Roman Reigns? Well, Cena is, is a cash cow merchandising wise. How many Bill Goldberg t-shirts did you see in the stand WCW in 1998, 1999? Very, very few. So it didn't really kill the golden goose to turn him heel. So I don't see why that's such a problem in the quote-unquote death of WCW? Uh, I agree. I mean, that that's a really small thing. I mean, he was their most pushable babyface, but you're right, he didn't do particularly good promos, so that, that really worked against him. Um, as far as this match goes, tell me if this makes sense. I didn't think it was a good match, but I thought Duggan played his role well, Goldberg played his role well, the crowd was into it, and it wasn't a good match, but it was good TV. Does that make sense? was and again the benefit of the vacuum if you're going to do this then duggan can never come back you can't have him you know internally bleeding because goldberg busted up his only good kidney and then have him come back a couple months later yeah (laughs) well by then you would think everyone would have forgotten i mean you know what duggan is a guy from what i understand everyone liked him and we're going you know from mid-south to wwf to this era and that probably has something to do with it. I mean, he was very popular in the locker room, and everyone respected him. Yeah, no one ever had a, an axe to grind about Duggan. It didn't hurt, obviously, that he was buddies with Hulk Hogan, and that's kind of how he got into WCW in the first place. But, you know, as, as time went on, obviously Hogan now has probably got two weeks left in WCW. So the fact that Duggan stuck around a little longer than that, and then they turned him heel when he came back. Oh, God, yeah, I remember that. Team Canada, which, you know, goes against his entire, somehow he goes from Mr. USA for the last, you know, 15 years. Now he's on Team Canada with, the, with Lance Norman. I believe it was an Elix Skipper, I think is the other guy was. Yeah, that, and once again, I'm not trying to rag on the guy too much, but that's kind of just, you know, the whole Vince Russo, what has shock value, even if it doesn't make sense, let's use it. Well, yeah, there's the thing about that. It had shock value. But then the next time it comes out, it makes no sense. Yep. It's like, okay, he turned heel. Wait, and you're kind of you know astonished by that, but then it's like, wait a minute, Team Canada? Yeah. Well, yeah. He loved doing stuff that made no sense. All right, everyone, it's a good convo so far. We're Thomas and I talking about an episode of WCW Nitro from 2000. We are going to continue with part two of this conversation next week. I hope you're looking forward to it. I hope everyone is staying safe. This uh, COVID thing, I mean, we might be over it, but it's not over us. So do what you need to do. Wear a mask. Follow me on Twitter. Smarten up, everybody. Go to Twitter. 
Look up John McAdam and follow the guy who has two guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. As you know, we have a Facebook page for this group. If you go on Facebook and search for Stick to Wrestling, you are more than welcome to join the group. Uh, It's a bunch of cool guys who talk wrestling and about the show, and it is interactive with the show, usually. Uh, We do have shows where you, the listeners, can ask questions, and you know, sometimes we have entire shows based on our listeners' questions. I would like to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for producing this episode. I want to thank Thomas Bain for being a great guest. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.